0: Well, if you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. We hope you feel welcome. Um, Thank you for joining us. Uh, You're actually joining us in the midst of a sermon series through Revelation. So this week we uh, land in Revelation chapter 12, which as I was considering it is a great sermon for Easter. It's a great Resurrection Sunday sermon. So we're just going to continue right on in our sermon series through Revelation this morning. But for the the benefit of our guests, maybe it'd be helpful to just survey uh, very, very quickly uh, the book of Revelation up to this point. Um, Revelation Revelation chapter 1 reveals the nature of this vision that was received by the Apostle John on on an island called Patmos, which is off the Greek peninsula. And when he receives this vision, it's presented in the form of a letter that's to be given to churches, which we see in chapters 2 and 3. But it's also presented as a prophecy, which is to tell the things that have taken place and are still to come, the, the, the name Revelation that we, we derive our English name for the title of the book from is actually the Greek word apocalypsis, which we get our word apocalypse from. So that describes the nature of this book, that this book is different from other books in the Bible. It's not merely a letter, and it's not merely a prophecy. In fact, it's, it's an apocalypse. It's a revelation. And so it contains imagery. It's presented with images rather than literal... Uh, words. Well, there are words, of course, here, but those words are symbols symbolizing other realities. And so it's important as we come to Revelation and as we consider what's written in it that we, that we take it with that mindset that it's a symbolic book. It's a picture book. It's meant to show us the things that have taken place, that are taking place, and that will take place in the future. After Revelation chapter 1 through 3, in which Jesus appears and there are letters given to seven churches, we get two visions in chapter 4 and chapter 5. The chapter 4 vision is a vision of God the Creator. And the chapter 5 vision is a vision of Christ the Redeemer. Christ is presented as a lamb slain, as a lion-like lamb. And in in his hands, he has a scroll, which is God's decrees of all of history. It's God's salvation and judgment and his plan for the world. And really, the rest of the book of Revelation is unpacking what's contained in that scroll that the Lamb took from the right hand of the Father. It begins with a series of judgments that we call the seven seals, in, in chapters six, in, specifically in chapter 6. And those seal judgments are meant to communicate what is happening in the world now as judgment on sin begins getting rolled out across God's creation. In chapter 7... God's people are assured that even though these judgments are coming in the world, they do not need to fear because they are kept safe and secure. They are marked by him and set apart for him and sealed by him. And then in Revelation chapter 8, we pick up the next round of judgments, which is often called the trumpet judgments or the, the seven trumpets. And these trumpets communicate the same things that the seals do. Just from a different vantage point, throughout this series we've been utilizing the image of a football game and the various cameras that are, that are used on the field to shoot the game. Whether it's above the stadium looking down or from the field or from the perspective of a specific player or from the coach, all those views give us different angles on the same reality that's happening. And so in Revelation, we see that unfold as well. The seven seal judgments, the seven trumpet judgments, are are judgments reflecting the same realities. They're rooted in the Old Testament, and specifically the plagues that came upon the people of Egypt in the days of Moses in the early part of the book of Exodus. And then, as expected, because Revelation is a sickness, Uh, a a book that presents uh, history in cycles and rolls out the same realities over and over again. It's cyclical, that's what I meant to say. Um, And as we go through the book of Revelation, we encounter another interlude in chapters 10 and 11, which we considered the last couple of weeks. Just as the seal judgments had an interlude between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, presenting God's people as secure, so between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, there is presented this reality in chapters 10 and 11 that God's people have a mission, that we're not just safe and secure and meant to bide our time here until Jesus comes back, but actually we're sent with the gospel to the nations. We are God's witnesses. First, the apostle John receives his recommissioning in chapter 10, and then in chapter 11, we receive our commission as presented by the two witnesses in chapter 11. And then the seventh trumpet is sounded, and the final judgment comes. Now, we enter a new section of Revelation this morning. We still have another section of judgments to come in chapters 15 and 16, which we call the seven bowls. But until then, there's this other little interlude in chapters 12 through 14. And this interlude is designed to give us a behind-the-scenes picture of what's going on while these judgments are coming, while the gospel's being preached... And while the church is on mission, what's going on behind the scenes? Well, the reality is is Satan hates it, and he's trying to bring it down. And that's really chapters 12, 13, and 14. And so what we get in chapter 12, having described the seven trumpet judgments, but before explaining the seven bowls in chapters 15 and 16, John inserts these three parenthetical chapters, verses 12 through 14, And the purpose of these three chapters, which we'll consider this week and, Lord willing, the next two weeks, is is intended to provide us with a deeper perspective on the spiritual conflict between the world and the church. How did we end last week at the end of Revelation chapter 11? The gospel going forward. And we begin chapter 12 with the reality that everything that happens on earth is a part of a cosmic war being waged in the spiritual realm. Satan is not merely going to let that happen without attacking Christ and his church. All of earthly mankind is caught up in a heavenly war between Christ and Satan. See, what we see day to day in this world is part of a larger picture that extends both to heaven and to hell. Nothing in our lives is ultimately natural. One of the ways that Satan has so captured the Western world is to de-supernaturalize everything. We have literally been gutted of supernatural reality and everything is formed around the rational and observable. And he has succeeded in a great measure because that was his intention. If he can demystify the world, if he can remove the spiritual realm from people's consciousness, he wins. He operates with blindness and distraction. And as long as he can keep us away from focusing on supernatural realities, he's won the day. But, friends, nothing in our lives is ultimately natural. It's all ultimately tied to supernatural reality. Your battles with sin, your struggles in your marriage, your fears, your frustrations, your worries, your temptations... Everything in your day-to-day physical, emotional, relational life is part of a spiritual war that's being waged behind the scenes. So Revelation 12, this chapter we're going to consider this morning, tells us in summary fashion the story of the whole Bible. It really is the grand redemptive story of the Bible in one chapter. It's something of a panorama of salvation history. It tells us In fantastic imagery, the true story of the whole world. It looks at the past, it addresses the present, and it points to the future. Revelation 12 consists of three different sections verses 1 through 6, verses 7 through 12, verses 13 through 17. And those three sections are going to form the substance of my outline this morning. Together, these three sections combine to reveal how Satan has been battling the people of God all throughout the Old Testament leading up to the coming of Christ and how he sought to defeat Christ himself but failed and has turned his attention to try to defeat the church. That's the whole point of Revelation chapter 12. Now, kids, I I should have done this on the front end of the Revelation series, and it just never crossed my mind. But it's crossed my mind now. We're about halfway through the book of Revelation, so let's start this now. Okay, since Revelation is such a book of imagery and symbolism... I would love to challenge you all during these sermons to draw what you're seeing, to draw what these images are trying to communicate, and then give it to one of your pastors. We'll take them. We want to see what you're able to come up with. You can give it to me, give it to Pastor Keith, other Pastor Keith, Pastor Thad. We'll take them. We'll keep them. So show us, your, show us what you got, especially this morning as we consider this dragon and the church. So um, with that in mind, let's dive into Revelation chapter 12. I've entitled the sermon this morning, Kill the Dragon and Get the Girl, which is not original to me. Andy Naselli, a New Testament professor, has summarized the story of the Bible that way, and I think it's a helpful summary to Revelation chapter 12 as well. So we're going to look at these three different sections, verses 1 to 6, verses 7 to 12, verses 13 to 17, one at a time. Verses 1 through 6 deals with the past, well, I should say the distant past. Uh, Verses 7 through 12 to deal with the immediate past, and verses uh, 13 through 17 deal with the present and the future. So, we're going to walk through Satan's battle plan toward Christ and the church throughout history, and he's going to absolutely hate this. Number one, Satan's initial attack to prevent the coming of Jesus. Verses 1 through 6. Satan's initial attack to prevent the coming of Jesus. If you were Satan, and you knew the only way for the world and sinners to be redeemed would be through the coming of a Redeemer, what would you try to do? Stop the Redeemer from coming. Right? If you stop the Redeemer from coming, you stop redemption from happening. And that has been Satan's mission ever since the garden. Ever since Genesis 3, the third page of your Bible, he has been on an attack to prevent the coming of Christ. Now, who's this woman being described in Revelation chapter 12? The woman is described with imagery that's used all over the Old Testament to depict the 12 tribes of Israel, the old covenant people of God. Israel is portrayed as a woman in childbirth waiting to bring forth the Messiah. You could read that as Isaiah chapter 26 verse 17 or Isaiah 66 verse 6. Both picture Israel as a woman longing to give birth. Her marvelous description describes and is drawing directly from the patriarch Joseph's dream in Genesis 37, verses 9 through 11. There, the sun represents Jacob, the moon represents Rachel, and the stars, the 12 tribes of Israel. Yet, even as this woman gives birth to her child and he's taken up to heaven, the woman flees into the wilderness where she's nourished for three and a half years, or 1,260 days, which is the time of tribulation, that we've been ascribed to, which is we've seen ascribed to the church earlier in the book of Revelation, God's new covenant people. So Revelation 12, 17, as we'll see in a moment, refers to Christians as the rest of her offspring, as the ones who have come out uh, past the old covenant into the new covenant as those redeemed by the Messiah. So it makes sense here to equate the woman here with the entire people of God spanning from the Old Old Testament Israel to the New Testament church. And at the center of this people is her child. Now, of course, this, this has often been interpreted as Mary is the woman. Well, Mary is, in a sense, the woman, but she's only one of many. She's the capstone woman who gives birth to the Messiah, but the picture here is of a long line of women, that have given birth to the promised seed that would one day come. We see here in verse 2 that this woman is pregnant, and her child is described in verse 5 as the one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, or who was caught up to God in his throne. Now, these are clearly references to the Lord Jesus Christ. Those descriptors are used in other parts of Revelation to refer to him. Now, obviously, Mary gave birth to Christ, as I said, But this woman symbolically stands here as the entire Old Testament people of God from whom Christ came and the entire New Testament people of God who follow after Christ today. So that's the woman. The woman is the church. Now in Genesis 3, when sin entered the world, God promised to send a son born from the seed of a woman to crush and destroy the serpent, Genesis 3.15. Now, from that point on, Satan has fought to prevent the coming of that son. It starts in Genesis 4, the very next chapter. Immediately, the seed of the serpent, Cain, destroys the seed of the woman, Abel. Murder is introduced into the world, which spirals out of control, and eventually leads to Genesis 8 where it seemed that all men were evil and deserving of God's wrath. It seemed that Satan has won. God's going to judge the world in a flood. But there was one, Noah, whom God raised up to preserve mankind and to preserve the line of the Messiah. Yet after that, man drifts back into the idolatry and God mercifully saved an idolater named Abraham and promised to bless his seed. It was through this line that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And in the pages to come, time and time again in the Old Testament, we see barrenness and infertility. First with Abraham's own wife, Sarah, and with the subsequent women after that, each circumstance threatening the continuation of the family line. Satan is behind it all, seeking to prevent the seed from coming. Yet, time and time again, in miraculous ways, the line is preserved and continues. All the way to the birth of King David through miraculous stories that include Moabites like Ruth. Then, God spares David from the hand of Saul and raises him up as the king of Israel. The line is preserved. But soon after that, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel had a daughter, a queen, a queen Athaliah, who decided in her heart to destroy the entire line of King David. She carried out her wrath, but unbeknownst to her, Joash, one of David's descendants, was hidden and lived. The line was once again preserved. Years later, foreign armies assembled against Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, and the line was threatened again. But God promised his people through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 7:14, "...the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel." The government shall be upon his shoulders, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. After this, the book of Esther tells us how at one single point, every single Jewish man, woman and child was decreed to die. And it looked like that was going to happen until God raised up a woman for such a time as this to save his people from extinction. All of that led to the day when a child, the child, was to be born in Bethlehem and the king declared that all children his age should be slaughtered. It was Satan's last gasp through Herod to rid this child from the earth once and for all. He'd been doing it for generations, for centuries. And God provided a way for this child and his family to escape to Egypt just in time to be saved. Over and over and over again, this red dragon has worked to keep Christ from coming onto the scene. But, but this dragon could not stop Christ. And the birth of Christ on that day in Bethlehem inaugurated the death of this ancient serpent. Just as it had been promised back in Genesis 3... Since the declaration of God in Genesis 3.15, Satan has sought to prevent this male child from coming. He moved Cain to kill Abel. He moved Pharaoh to kill Hebrew baby boys. He moved Saul to kill David. He moved wicked Athaliah to destroy all the royal heirs of the house of Judah. He moved Haman to plot genocide against the Jews. He moved Herod to try to kill Jesus, but he failed. Verse 5 tells us, But she gave birth to a son, a male who is going to shepherd all nations with an iron scepter. So that has been, in a summary form, the story of the Old Testament and Satan's initial attack to try to prevent Christ from coming. Let's come to the second point then. Satan's decisive defeat through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Attacking both Christ and the church is this great red dragon of verse 3 with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads is seven diadems. This is meant to communicate his power. It's meant to communicate his authority. But John tells us in verse 9 that this great red dragon, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he comes forth from the sea, which is the abyss of evil. He's a dragon who seeks to devour the child. He's the ancient serpent taking us all the way back to Genesis 3 in our minds where sin entered the world. And he's the adversary of God's people, the accuser of our brothers, the deceiver of the whole world. The birth of Christ declared the death of this ancient serpent. The death of Christ defangs this adversary. Satan, of course, did not give up once the child was born. As soon as we see Jesus beginning his earthly ministry, we see in a, in a fully engaged satanic assault as the Spirit drives Satan into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, to pass the test that Adam failed, not in a garden, but in a desert. Not in a place of plenty, but in a place of want. And Christ succeeded in the desert. Adam failed in paradise. This Christ was tempted to the uttermost. He was offered all the kingdoms of the world. He was offered the place of highest honor. He was offered everything the devil could throw at him. And he turned it all down. Because he was committed to God. He fought against Christ throughout his life and ministry, tempting him to try to not carry out the mission of the, the Father had given him. In fact, when Peter, his own disciple, comes to him and says, Lord, you will never die. I mean, we, we cannot imagine you doing such a thing. He says, get behind me, Satan. That's what Satan's been trying to get me to do the whole time. Don't go to the cross. If I can't kill you, I'll keep you from going there. Strike you with such fear that you would never even think of doing it. But Jesus faithfully set his face like flint toward the cross, where he decisively and decidedly took down the devil and threw him out. Paul says in Colossians 2.15, in summary form, that Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities, talking about the evil spiritual realm, making a public spectacle of them by triumphing, triumphing over them in the cross. At the cross, Jesus defeated sin through sacrificial obedience, and the blood of the Lamb became the basis by which Satan was ultimately conquered. The death of Christ defanged the serpent, and the resurrection of Christ demolished all his accusations against the church. In the end, death could not hold down this king. He was brought up to God, verse 5, and in return, the accuser was thrown down. That's what happened at the cross. See, the only thing that Satan can ever marshal against anyone is the justice of God against their unforgiven sin. Satan knows better than we do that God just can't forgive sin willy-nilly. There are thousands he is convinced that that's the case. That all you got to do is ask. God just forgives. There's no payment required. And with this, he's deceived the nations. But Christ came, and the means by which he was able to render the accusations of the devil moot is by paying for the sins that he would accuse against God's people. Because now he can no longer make a legitimate charge stick. He can say, oh, they're a sinner. But Christ can respond, oh, but their sins are paid for. He can come to them and say, they deserve to die, but oh, I died for them. They don't deserve to be raised from the dead. Oh, but I did, and they're in union with me. See, it's all answered by the work of Christ. It's all answered by his life, by his death, and by his resurrection. Now, what does all all this mean? Well, let me summarize it very simply. From the very entrance of sin into the world, God has promised to send his Son in the form of a man born from woman to defeat the devil. That's the story of the Bible. This God did in the person of Jesus who was born just as he had been prophesied for centuries. Jesus did what no one has ever done or ever will do on the pages of human history. He lived a perfect life free from sin, never once giving in to the temptations of evil, and then he died on the cross to pay the price for sin once and for all. And then three days later, he rose from the grave in victory over sin and death and the devil himself so that all who believe in him, all who trust in him, will be saved from their sin. Friends, I can ask you no more significant question on this Resurrection Sunday than this. Have you trusted in this Jesus as your Savior? This is the most important question you will ever answer. And it's the most important question you could ever be given. Is your life aligned with him? How else will you stand against the accusations of the evil one? He knows everything you've ever done and more. Things that you're not even aware of. And he is fully prepared to marshal those as evidence for your condemnation at the day of judgment. And he will be absolutely right. He is a vicious attorney who will gather up all the dirt he can on you. And it's all true. It's all true. Do you have anyone who will plead your case? Do you have an advocate with the Father? There is one. 1 John chapter 2 says we have one advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 1 Timothy 2.5 says there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. John 14.6 makes it crystal clear. I am the way, Jesus said, and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Will you really try to stand on your own merits? you going to roll the dice on that? Stand on your own goodness? Stained? All that goodness Stained? by original and actual sin? Will you cling to the merits of some other religious teacher or a book you read or an article on the internet or a YouTube video? What other religious teacher in all of history has their credentials of Christ? A perfect life, a sacrificial death, a triumphant resurrection? The only way to overcome the accusations of the adversary is by trusting in the blood of the Lamb. Trust in Jesus today. That's Satan's decisive defeat. We come to point number three, final point now. And I want us to discuss, we've seen Satan's initial attack to try to prevent the coming of Christ in verses 1 through 6. We've seen his decisive defeat at the cross in verses 7 through 12. And now I want us to look at his current warfare against the church in verses 13 through 17. Now, once Satan figures out that he can't stop Christ, which he can't, he turns to attack the church, the woman, the people of God who believe in Jesus. It says in verse 13 that he pursues them. The word John uses here is used for persecution and opposition in other places in Scripture. Verse 15 says that he pours out water like a river from his mouth to try to sweep her away with a flood. It's the imagery of judgment. He's trying to bring, just as Noah brought the flood or was was built the Ark and, and saved the people on it, his family and others, through the flood, so Satan is trying to cause another flood of God's wrath and judgment to come upon the church. The imagery is Satan going after God's people, working day and night to strike them down. It's what was going on in the first century. It's what's going on in the 21st century. The adversary, the devil, that ancient serpent is still fighting Christ, but he's doing it by opposing and persecuting Christ's people, making war on her offspring, as verse 17 says. Jesus' victory has yet to be completely enforced in this world. It will at his second coming, but it has yet to take full Course, one day Christ is going to come and enforce his victory finally and completely, and evil will be totally abolished. Think of what happened in World War II. In World War II, you had D Day and V Day. D Day was the initial victory, it was we were on the road to victory, but it didn't happen officially until V Day. But the decisive blows had been done at D Day, The, the ground had been gained. The armies had advanced. They were now in and in, in occupying enemy territory. Brothers and sisters, through Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection, D-Day has happened. And now the devil is running scared. He knows his time is short and he is insane trying to grasp for everything he can get and bring everyone down with him that he possibly can. He hates your soul. Christ loves your soul. He won't die for you. He'll die with you. Christ will die for you, and you will reign forever with Him. So one day, V-Day is coming. V-Day is coming at Christ's resurrection. Or, sorry, it's Christ's second coming. D-Day was accomplished at His resurrection. But now we find ourselves in between that time. We're in between D-Day and V-Day. We find ourselves in the midst of battle, and the strategy of the adversary is to prevent people from experiencing the peace of Christ, and the presence of Christ that Christ has bought for them. So how, how do we handle this warfare now, church? Well, as we sang this morning, we put our armor on. We put our armor on. Namely, the shield of faith, along with a lot of other aspects of armor that we've been given according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6. But the shield of faith, I mention that because that's precisely des- divine, t- designed to, 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 to rid the darts and the accusations of the enemy null and void. The shield of faith is what protects us against the accusations of the devil. The flaming darts of the evil one, as Paul says. What are these missiles, these darts, these arrows that Satan launches against us? What are these? Well, we would have to include... Here, things like the sudden and unexpected eruption in our minds of images and thoughts that shock and surprise us. Such that they're so obviously and undeniably contrary to our most basic redeemed desires. And yet they're there. This may include... Blasphemous thoughts about Jesus or revolting images of sexual perversity or suicidal urges or compulsive thoughts of doing horribly violent things or unaccountable impulses to rebel against God, against one's family, against one's church, subtle insinuations against God's character and goodness, feelings of false guilt. Frequently, these darts come while reading the Bible, while praying, while sitting under a sermon, while attending church, while driving to church. This aggravates feelings of personal guilt and worthlessness insofar as such occasions are regarded as spiritual. We start saying to ourselves, what kind of person am I that I have such thoughts like this? At precisely the same time I should be loving and worshiping God? That's not strange, brothers and sisters. That's normal. You are the object of the devil's hatred. Why would you think you wouldn't have those kinds of thoughts? I'm worthless, I deserve to die, I'm not worth anything, I should give up. Is any of that true? No, it's not true. It's not true. It's a lie from the pit of hell. But Satan has made it his goal to try to persuade you of that. Satan will try to persuade you that you're a failure, that you're a fool, that you're of no use to God, that you're worthless to other Christians, that you're an embarrassment to Christ, that you're wasting your time to confess your sins because god won't listen to you that you're inferior to other believers that you're destined to always fall short that you're a hopeless victim of your past and helpless to change your future that you're a pathetic excuse for a christian that you are now what you always will be and there is no hope for improvement you ever hear any of those voices you ever get any of those accusations if you don't are are you in christ Because we all experience something of that. I'm not saying every one of us is the perpetual target of demonic attack or that we're always fighting these mental battles. But nevertheless, we know those seasons, we know those days, we know those moments. So how does then the shield of faith function as a protection against these flaming darts of Satan when he comes with his accusations? Well, when Satan whispered, God may have cared about you once before long ago, but his interest in you is long gone. You lift up the shield of faith and you say, that's impossible. God is immutable. He doesn't change. His concern for me is eternal. What he has promised to me, he will fulfill. He can never stop loving me because he never started. He's loved me from all eternity. There's never been a moment that he hasn't loved me. When Satan whispers, God doesn't love you anymore, not after you've failed him so many times, you lift up the shield of faith and you say, that's impossible. impossible. God's love for me can't cease to exist. He demonstrated it when he gave his son to suffer in my place. The shield of faith then functions each time that we hold up the truths of scripture under the onslaught of Satan's lies. Satan knows that he can gain a major strategic advantage over us if he can sow the seeds of doubt in our minds concerning our relationship with God. In every instance of serious and sustained demonic attack that I've ever encountered, the individual was plagued, whether myself or someone else, with doubt concerning their salvation. There is nothing Satan can do to alter or undermine the fact that God's people in Christ are saved. So he will do everything he can to sabotage their enjoyment of it. Not angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans eight thirty-five to 39 says. And he includes principalities and powers there for a reason. What Satan can do is erode your confidence in Christ. And if he can erode your confidence, he can erode your usefulness. Our salvation, our standing with God does not fluctuate or diminish with success or failure in our spiritual battles. They are fixed because Christ was successful in all of his spiritual battles for us. But Satan is determined to convince us that it does. And it does matter. I can remember Jerry Bridges who has since gone on to be with the Lord, one of my early and favorite writers as a young Christian saying in one of his books that there is never a day that is so good where you're beyond the need for God's grace and there is never a day so bad where you're beyond the reach of God's grace. Satan would tell you that's not true. (laughs) He would say oh there are some days where you're absolutely beyond the reach of God's grace but that's not true. So when the devil accuses you of being a grievous sinner, one who is undeserving of the mercy of God, you look back at him and say, you're right. That just ain't the whole story. I have a great Savior, and because he shed his blood for me, I am safe and secure from your accusations forever. So don't miss the point, brothers and sisters of Revelation 12. Satan is is a defeated foe the spiritual battle that is being waged today in the world is a battle that has already been won this is life-changing testimony emboldening news for every single one of us to hear this morning we fight this battle not for victory but from victory Satan could not stop Christ And Satan can't stop those in union with Christ, the church. And even the suffering that he brings to Christians, permitted by the reigning Christ, that persecution he brings will inevitably result in our victory and his defeat. Think about it. When Satan filled the heart of Judas to betray Christ for 30 pieces of silver, he was purchasing his own death warrant. By Judas going and betraying Christ and sending him to the cross, Satan was being punished. (laughs) He thought he was getting away with it. He thought, finally, I've killed the one I came to kill for all those years. And through Christ's death on the cross, instigated by Satan himself, Satan was killed and destroyed and defamed and thrown down. So hear this. When Satan attempts to use suffering and persecution to defeat Christians, he ultimately contributes to Christians' eternal delight and to his own destruction. Because if he kills a Christian, he gives them a better life than he's taken away from them. Because to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Kill me, Satan. It's gain. Jesus is better than what you can offer me or take away from me, whether it's money or sex or respect or love or possessions or family or promotion or sports or holidays or gaming or homes. Satan only wins, brothers and sisters, when we love our lives more than we love God. When we allow our hearts to be captured by earthly comfort and find that we would do anything and everything to procure more, preserve what we have, promote it, make it comfortable, insulate it, keep it. Too many of us love our lives on this earth too much. It's way out of proportion. It's an illegitimate love. There is a good and legal love of life that God's people should have. I'm not talking about that. Celebrate life. Enjoy it. You got a few days. Ecclesiastes tell you, go for the gusto in Christ under God's law. Go for it. Milk joy out of this life, but it's ending. This is an over, what I'm talking about is an overprotective concern For personal comfort and convenience and peace and prosperity and the resultant energy and money and lifestyle it takes to keep perpetuating that thing. Brothers and sisters, here's the reality. Satan wins when you treasure anything more than Jesus. You can't overcome the devil with a 95% commitment to Christ. you got to be all in with him. Everything of my life is his, at his disposal, for his glory. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That defeats Satan. He's got nothing on him. Whatever God gave, he can take away from me. Bless his name. And you see, that's why Job responds the way he does. Because that takes the talons out of the dragon once and for all. He's got nothing on you if you love God more than anything. See, the church, the people of God, have been engaged in a war with Satan for more than 2,000 years. And it's a staggering testimony to the wickedness of our enemy that he knows his time and short, and yet he continues to assault and to accuse and to do everything in his power to undermine our faith in Jesus. But we've been guaranteed victory by our lovely and loving Lord Jesus, not because of our righteousness or our spirituality, but because of the victory that was secured by him on the cross and in his triumphant resurrection. And through that, His blood cleanses us from all sin, and makes us, according to the Catechism, wholeheartedly, because of that work, freely and willing to give our lives for Him. Let's take as our life motto what John Calvin said: the point of his life was promptly and sincerely in the service of God. Do you love that? Do you want that on your tombstone? Promptly, sincerely. In the service of God. Whatever he asks, whenever he asks it, from my whole heart, I will love him. May God give us that love. And you know where that love's gonna come from? Grasping at a deep level, his never ending, never giving up, always and forever love for you. When that goes deep into your marrow, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for our conquering Savior where would we be this morning? We certainly wouldn't have any reason to gather here. Why would we gather this morning if Christ were not risen from the dead? My preaching, every, this last 40 minutes, total waste of time. Total waste of time. And everything that we claim to believe, total deception. But we thank you that Christ has been raised from the dead. And therefore, the preaching's not in vain. Our faith is not in vain. We're not still in our sins. Christ is not still in his grave. He's reigning right now at your right hand, serving us as his people with the oil of his Holy Spirit to sustain us in this wilderness wandering until we come to the promised land. Lord Jesus, protect us from, the, from Satan and his devices and his wicked ways. You have put him on a leash. He cannot do anything that you don't permit him to do. So, Lord, would you protect us? May we be, do what Peter told us to do, knowing Peter himself was a victim of such satanic attacks when he said, Be aware, the devil is like a roaring lion going around seeking whom he, dev- he may devour. Resist him firm in your faith. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to resist him. Firm, not not in our own strength, but firm in the faith that is in Christ Jesus and all the strength and grace and help that comes through believing those promises. We give you praise. We rise to worship you now as our risen king and and one who will be coming again. In Christ's name we pray.